Our guest, Richard Moss, is an internationally respected leader in the field of inner transformation, simply by living a path of conscious relationships. In 1977, Richard was a practicing medical doctor when he experienced a spontaneous spiritual illumination that awakened him to the multidimensional nature of human consciousness. This realization profoundly transformed his understanding of the roots of emotional suffering and inspired him to explore the almost limitless human potential for growth and healing. You are now listening to the Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. Now, lucky for us, Richard's spontaneous spiritual illumination created an opening whereby he released his practice of medicine to to devote his life to mentoring individuals and couples whose lives have brought them to the point where they hungered to explore the mystery of their being. Whether others were called to his work by their soul's yearning to awaken and grow or impelled by a health career, or relationship crisis, his comprehensive and evolutionary approach to healing and forging loving relationships has transformed the lives of tens of thousands of people. Well, Richard has published seven books on his visionary approach to human evolution, which have been translated in six languages. He is practically, he's particularly renowned for his innovative experiential nature of his workshops and longer retreats that offer individuals a direct experience of life-changing states of consciousness and provide them with very effective models and practices for ongoing personal growth within their lives. Richard, we are so honored to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Am I speaking to Paula? Yes, it's Paula and Taz is with us. And I'm here. Hi, Taz. Okay. Okay. Well, Richard, we we kind of uh, touched a little bit upon uh, you were a practicing medical doctor at one point Mm -hmm. and then what I would say began uh, healing souls instead of bodies. Could you go into that story a little bit, how how you changed from being an emergency doctor to the work that you're doing now? Oh, yes. Well, taking me back now into, what, 30... Seven years into the past or so, but but um, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners really really have had the experience that when when the deeper the deeper spirit calls you, you, you get sort of get taken. Now at the time, I didn't realize, you know, I was a seeker. I was looking into into consciousness. I had been practicing meditation for quite a number of years i had exposed myself to a little bit of buddhism and a little bit of um, um gnostic christianity and kabbalah and things like that and 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 but but what happened was i just started to have a series of spontaneous openings and awakenings um one day i was in the emergency room with a patient who i was going to admit for observation so i was about to sedate him and a voice said to me you have nothing to share with this man except love the voice was in my my head, but it wasn't my voice. So I put the the, the, the medication down. I had a nurse with me. There was a, um, a another person in the room, and I just lightly touched the man. I told him, "I'm just going to touch you lightly for a moment." I, and, and and so he thought I was just going to examine him, but 
but in fact, I it, he got and I the room got blazing hot. He his eyes rolled back in his head. He fell asleep instantly. A half an hour later, he was completely pain free, and we discharged him. And I went home at the end of that shift at the emergency room, thinking, what in the world was that? Um, and I had begun to know something about energy and energy work um, through through other things. But I was at that point in my late twenties, and um, this was it was sudden. And then I had a, a profound awakening uh, just shortly after I turned 30, which was, I think we would we would talk about it today as the well, what people mean when they talk about cosmic consciousness or the awakening, the full awakening of the Kundalini energy. And it was like a giant, a giant download of knowing and understanding that came pretty much all at once, and it really changed my view of what life was about, what I was about, everything. It was like a total change of intelligence, a total change of perspective. And I've been integrating that for the last 36 years. And it's at the foundation of all my work. So in a certain sense, I was called. I didn't go looking. And it took me, and I did my best to integrate it and continue to grow and learn. And, and that's that's been the journey. So there was a foundation of... of um, ordinary education and university and medical school and some years of medical practice and then suddenly um, pretty spontaneously just well exactly spontaneously the awakening of this this new energy and consciousness and I've never looked back Richard what was this like I mean what you say there was spontaneous how what was your thinking process when this happened I mean what was what was it like to see this reversal of your thought or the intuitive aspect of it? Well, first, there'd been a period of maybe, I can't remember anymore if it was a year, a couple of years, where I felt a kind of despondency. And, and what kept me really interested was whenever I could get away from medicine, I would go rock climbing. And and the, the state of flow in rock climbing was just mag, it's just a magnificent state. And I think any athletic any person that's done any athletics or dancing or singing and touch that state knows what I mean. So that was the prelude. Um, but there was otherwise a, a kind of sense that what in the world is life all about and a, a, a darkness. And then suddenly this energy just came in. It was gigantic. It was like my body was in a nuclear reactor. It was almost impossible to sleep. And to the extent that I, because I was a doctor, I knew it wasn't psychosis. I knew it wasn't... Uh, a tumor of the adrenal glands. I knew it wasn't a seizure, um, and I didn't fully really know, you know, anything much about mystical experience or awakening. But I did call someone, and who said to me, "I think this is what's happening to you, but I'm not gifted enough to help you. Do your best." And what I really had to do, what I really had to do, is I had to literally sit day and night. I got a little bit of sleep, but day and night, I mean, it may have been for almost a week. I watched every thought that came through my head, and I said, you're a thought. Uh, you're a thought about me. You're a thought about the memory in the past. You're a thought anticipating the future. You're a thought uh, terrified by what you're feeling. This is a sensation. This is a sensation of a vibration in the body. This is an activation of something powerful in my third eye. This is a, I didn't call it my third eye in those days. This is a powerful activation in the chest and the heart. Um, so I named sensations. I named thoughts. I named feelings day and night. And I had a friend who was a Jungian, Jungian analyst who instantly realized that I was in the midst of some kind of profound spiritual openings, put all of her practice on hold, canceled her clients, made a space for me in her home, 
And that's what I did all day. I sat in her backyard. I watched the thoughts, and I, and it was what kept me from feeling like I would go insane. I just said, okay, now I'm in the past. Now I'm in the future. This is a judgment in me. This is a judgment in my situation. This is a thought. This is a feeling. This is, And I just kept... And then I saw a black and white butterfly dancing, or a dark a black butterfly, dark butterfly, and a, and a lighter colored butterfly dancing in the air. They landed on a branch about five, ten feet from me. They mated. Then they danced in the air briefly, and then the black butterfly landed in the center of my forehead. And in that split second, at that moment... The terror became absolute, you know, unexpressible peace, fullness, wholeness, and you know, when there's the expression, the inner and the outer become a single one. Um, and I realized that that this was what all mystical literature was about. This was about this was the true meaning of of being born again. Being born again has nothing. I know in Christian circles it's about taking a belief system on and following it, but this was being born again at a at a fundamental cellular, I was just transformed. The man after was not the same as the man before, though in terms of the ego and patterns of selfishness and self-involvement and self-protection and competitiveness, all of the ego stuff, that's still, that doesn't change. You have to work on that, and I've always had, you know, continued to work on that. But that's what the state of mind was. It was... Everything, I put myself without knowing it into the present moment and became a prof, uh, just a, a relentless observer of everything that was arising in my consciousness. And I knew that the part of me that was observing it was bigger. And then suddenly when the black butterfly landed, I was everything. And at one with everything. And then for that energy stayed, that energy's never left. Though the intensity, thank God, left because otherwise I would be dead. But then for the next maybe six weeks, I was in a state of absolute supernal peace and bliss. And my mind was just being filled with understanding constantly. Um, and I never did go back to medicine. And I wrote my first book maybe a year after this event. I started writing it. It was called The I, like I am the capital I that is we. Um, and I continued. And I started to see people. Um, kind of quite spontaneously, my old patients just contacted me, wanted to talk to me, so I invited them to my home. And then one day, a therapist called me and said, "You know, one of my patients has been visiting you at your home, and some amazing changes are happening. What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm sitting and with them in silence for long periods of time, and holding their hands in silence, and just breathing with them. And then, and then maybe sometimes we talk for a while." And she said, would you be willing to give a, a training for herself and some of her colleagues? And I said, well, I don't know what I'd do, but if you want to come and sit at my house with me, fine. And that was 1976, or no, maybe 1977, I guess 1977. And um, from that day forward, uh, I've, you know, through that therapist and that first gathering, one led to another, led to another. And I've been all over the world doing my retreats, doing my teaching since then. Now, this is going to be strange for me to say, but um, just listening to your voice <laughs> creates me to be more centered. Well, that's and not strange. That's that's that presence that never has left. That's 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 the emanation, and and um, I think that's the agency of the consciousness awakened. And and saying that, I want to make a clear difference differentiation between 
me as an ego where I can be, you know, I have to be the witness to my own thoughts or I can create my own unhappiness. And so I practice what I teach and I have continued to practice it all these many years. But it started that day or those days with watching every thought um, and watching every sensation and watching every feeling and doing nothing but that. Um, so what I think you're hearing and perhaps what people listening are hearing is what people feel when they come into the retreats. Um, and they start to feel something deep inside of them centering, settling, and doors opening in their being. And I've tried to write about it, and, and it, it's in my books it, 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 in different ways in all of the books. And, and in the last book, Inside Out Healing, and the one before it, Mandala of Being, I took all these years of work and put it together and said, okay, here's actually the practices that you can use for transformation. And I understand that transformation is personal work, like anything else, and then there's an element of grace. You know, we can do as best we can, but but without without grace, without the mystery of the deep spiritual, whatever we want to think of it, that comes also to join our efforts, we don't make much progress. But without the effort, we don't make any progress. So it's. it's Okay. So you're opening doors of tears of joy. Oh, how beautiful. I mean, that's the feeling that I got just now. So I just mm. thought I would share that. Thank you. So um, I was looking at your calendar, mm-hmm. and you're not going to be in the United States until November for a retreat. Well, I'll be in South Carolina in September for one of okay. the four-day deep work retreats, and then I'll be working with couples. I'm not. I think the location isn't determined yet, but there's a program in October. I think it's almost full now, but the retreat in November is not full yet. And then you know, people can go to my website, which is my name, and and see what the calendar is. Um, I know most of the people listening aren't going to be coming to Europe, but if someone wants to to be in a retreat with, you know, sometimes we have 13 nationalities and we do it in English and French. There's a wonderful, wonderful retreat in um, the beginning of August, end of July, in the south of France. Yes, I, I uh, I'm going to Bogota, Colombia next week. So, uh, without me ever really trying. As the books got translated and people started traveling to me, and then they invited me back to their countries, and I've been in a lot of places. And so, in September, and people can take a look in uh, outside of um, Winston Salem, North Carolina, at a beautiful, beautiful facility that belongs to a friend. It's not open to the public except for from my work and some rare things. It's a lovely lake and houses, and it's a small group. We only can have about 20, 24 of us. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. So, well, you know, being able to, um, yeah, being able, it sounds, um, I've been doing this for several years, whereby my mind just stills, and I can look at all my thoughts. And, and, and it's interesting that that you do this. I think I'm not sure what it does, but it just kind of um, 
it slows one down and and you're able to really look at what you're thinking and you're able to observe and and feel that energy it's really really powerful and so i guess what you're saying is you sit with people and you allow them to get to that state is that yeah, what's taking place sure i allow them to get to that i teach them i teach them what i call the mandala of being which is a model is just to recognize that we're always in the present moment, but sometimes the present moment is being emotionally disturbed by thoughts, and the thoughts will either be about our, you know judgments of themselves or judgments of other people, yeah. or they'll be about the past or they'll be about the future. And so that's one piece of the teaching. But I work with breath and movement and dance and play and fasting and silence and... Um, listening practices and dream work, um, whatever it, you know, because I think, you know, we need to listen to the unconscious, we need to listen to the deeper part of ourselves, and that comes through dreams or stream of consciousness. Um, And so I use many methodologies, because what I'm trying to help people do is, is land so deep in themselves that they realize in a certain sense who they really are. And, and from that point on, you know how in a computer it has a default setting and and if, if it always goes back to those basic settings and you, you can customize it. But if you something goes wrong, it goes back to the default. Well, most of us have a default setting that's been based on believing our thoughts and running away from our feelings, uh, especially threatening feelings, or even the, the wonderful feelings uh, I've met so many people that have had, you know, just wonderful openings of, of uh, into into states of, you know, mystical and states of oneness, and then they try to, to they try to hold on to it, and they they make themselves miserable trying to return to what was wonderful in the past, or people who were in love, and 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 remember that, and then don't let themselves fall in love again, or they don't let themselves love the the moment they're living because it doesn't. It doesn't feel as good as the memory. So I try to bring people in their bodies back into the present, understand what their minds do to them, understand how to be very creative and live in new ways with feeling, especially the scary feelings, um, like aloneness or, or, or the fear of annihilation or the fear of abandonment. There's, there's certain kinds of feelings that just... You know, if you, we can call them angelic and heavenly and blissful, ecstatic, and that's the the, the highest ones and, and the you know the kind of expansive ones. But then they have their dark brothers and sisters, the the lower ones. That the old mythology about heaven and hell are actually just there's there's no heaven or hell in, in actuality, but there are heavenly feelings and hellish feelings, and human beings have struggled with them forever. And the hero's journey. Um, is about going into the dark wood or into the quicksand or into the black cave or descending into the the, the dark dark places, and then and then being transformed in the fires of the this this deep intimacy with the darkness, and then emerging once again as a transformed person. Um, so that you know all of the mythology is of the hero's journey is about that kind of transformation through the darkness and. So I'm basically leading people on the hero's journey, or the heroine's journey, if you will, which is a, a journey of spiritual awakening and empowerment, and not 
not otherworldly at all because empowerment to me means that you really are functioning well in the world and you're making a profound contribution to your family and your community um, in whatever way you can. I mean, this is what an 80-year-old woman commun- contributes to a community is different than what a 40-year-old woman does or, or a 40-year-old man and an 80-year-old man. But to sit next to an elder who can just be at peace with whatever life brings teaches so much to a young person. And so some of the youngest people that work with me are 20, and then some of them occasionally are 80. And each one has something to offer to this great adventure of evolving consciousness, transformation of consciousness. And to me, you know, if you transform consciousness, then you help transform the world. When things happen to us that we don't particularly care for, um, we can look at it as a gift or a lesson. And it, instead of a lesson, look at it as a gift that, that, that to me, it makes things better. I mean, you don't have to sit around and feel sorry for yourself. I absolutely agree with you. And that's and that's wisdom, to to, to take what life brings and say, okay... I, I, I wish this hadn't happened, but now that it's happened, how can I how can I live this in such a way as to become a more compassionate, loving person? Uh, I was just talking to a friend last night whose uh, husband has cancer, mm-hmm. and um, so she, it was actually after reading because I was um, going through. Uh, reviewing for our interview today, so I had your words of wisdom <laughs> right at hand. So um, I, I said to her, "You know, you're uh, you're spending your whole time thinking about what are you going to be doing without him and how lonely you're going to be." I said, "Be present with him now and enjoy him now." So it it worked out perfectly. I mean, I had just got through reading some things that you had written, and I was able to. Uh, pass that on to her. Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, yeah, exactly. She was in the future, and uh, those future thoughts were making her anxious and maybe, maybe miserable. And there's this man right in front of her who she may know really well, but she can know him a lot better because as people let go in in the dying process, if he's actually dying, they become incredibly incredibly you know, multi-dimensional and capable some the ones that don't close down they just they just radiate love but if she just is right there with him right in the moment then she won't look back with the slightest regret you know, it's so much healing is going to take place even even in a few minutes of being completely even in a few seconds of being completely present with someone else so much healing takes place you can't you can't even explain how it happens because you know you don't even have to name it; it just happens. And and if she can, you know, if it's been a long relationship, then they have wonderful stuff between them, and they have a lot of unspoken stuff between them. But just by being present, even the unspoken stuff can stay unspoken, but it'll heal. It'll just yeah, it'll just heal in that energy of presence. Um, and then when he goes, if he does, she'll be able to say, you know. I lived these last weeks, months, whatever, with him so deeply. I have, I'll always miss him, but I have no regret. But if she stays in in her own future stories, 
she's making she's making his death about her psychology, and that's narcissism, and we that's self involvement, and we all do that unless we wake up and realize, you know, if he's the one that's going through this difficult time, let go of yourself and just be there, be with him. Forget yourself and just be with him. Let 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 heaven embrace the two of you right now. Um, there's no less heaven in this present moment than any other present moment, and it doesn't matter whether one person is ill or both people are, or whether we're getting old. There's just there's, 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 you can't say there's more heaven in one moment or less heaven in one moment than another. It's just that our heads take us off into the past or the future. Or into these these judgments of ourselves and others, and it's kind of how we pollute ourselves. And everybody does this until someone tries, to, until you learn that there's a better way of of living. And then you have to practice. Then you have to practice. What what I started doing in that backyard when I was so afraid with that awakening energy of just watching the thoughts, I've practiced that now thousands, tens of thousands of hours. And um, so I I don't listen to a single thought. That if it if it even causes the slightest ripple of distress in my body, I just drop the thought. If I have a thought that says um, God wants me to do better, more work, or better work, and my body starts to get a little bit tense, and then I throw away that thought. Now, I I don't believe in a God that 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 wants me to do anything, you know, un- unless it's just emerging out of me from that deep flow. You know, if I've heard people say I have to be more loving. And I said, well, if you get quiet right now and ask your body, what, and listen in your body, what's happened to you when you say, I need to be more loving? And every one of them will say, oh, I feel a little tense, or I feel a little anxious, or I feel a little guilty. So I said, well, that's the truth of the thought, I need to be more loving. Anxiety, guilt, ang- you know, tension. That's, you know, so, so that's the truth of that. So, so don't bother with that. Just start right now. Love isn't something we do. Love is something that takes us, it claims us when we don't poison ourselves with our heads. And then it lives in us and, and it and it instructs us. Um, I mean, we can, of course, love our children and love certain people in a certain sense. But the reason love grows there is because we don't let ourselves become more important than the relationship. I've never thought of it that way it's when people are, it's like you're thinking more about yourself than the other person when you feel sorry for yourself or you're thinking about what you're going to, you're going to be lonesome or whatever. It's, as you said, almost narcissistic. So. Well, it is, and it's not evil. It's, it's just, it's just that we have, we have this mind and we've trained it to be doctors or lawyers or dentists or Whatever we've trained it, you know, plumbers and electricians, and, but we have not trained our minds to teach us how to become profoundly intimate, how to let love just just be our teacher, how to how to let relationships teach us. Uh, so we stay in this very individualistic place, and and then our relationships don't work very well. Um, we have to ask the question: What does the relationship want? With, this, with equal and equal curiosity, as we ask the question, "Well, what do I want?" And sometimes, what the relationship wants is very different than what 
what you or I might want. Um, I was thinking about what you just said, and I've heard so many parents that worry about their children. And basically what, what it comes down to is they're worried that their children are going to be unhappy or their children won't finish school or are hanging out with the wrong kids or going to get too caught in drugs and you know and some kids do and it's and and it, but they a parent can't help a child through that when the child has a sense that the real reason though it may not be conscious in the parent the real reason the parent is worried about the child is because if the child behaves in a way that the parent feels safe or feels like he or she's a good parent then, then, so the child realizes, oh, they, they're not, it's not really about me. They want me to behave this way so they feel good about themselves. My, so my parents feel good about themselves. And I tell parents, don't try to change your children so you'll feel better about you. Get to listen to your children. You know, learn, listen, connect with your children. Hear where their reality is because you really want to know them. And they'll recognize immediately that it's not about you. It's not about the parent. And as soon as it's not about the parent, they'll start to listen. And they may even take your advice. Um, and so, you know, the constant possibility of a parent is to keep going deeper into consciousness, recreating yourself, rebirthing yourself, and having an endless growing relationship with your children. Just a profound profound relationship with your children that just keeps transforming and transforming and transforming right right till old age for the parent um, it's you know but the kids aren't going to listen if if they think oh i have to study harder because my mom will feel safer if i'm getting good grades she'll think she's a good mom you know it they they recognize that it's not truly about them and then and then they rebel or they don't pay attention, or they don't trust. Well, being in the moment is hard to stay in the moment for so many of us. Um, so you said that in your books you have tools that can help us. Yeah, there's a free e-course on the website on on what I mentioned before, the mandala work with learning how to come back from the me and the you and the past and future stories, learning how to recognize them, learning how to work with them in your body. Um, and, and there, you know, it's, there is in, in the book Mandala of Being and in the book Inside Out Healing, it's very, very practical. It's, it, by the time I started writing those books, I'd had 30 years of experience with myself and with people. So it, it really is a very practical way. But when you say it's difficult to stay in the present moment, what you're really saying is, since early childhood, we believed our thoughts. We listened to what our head was saying, and we believed our thoughts. And the only time we went out of our head was if we were dancing or swimming or riding a surfboard or riding a bike or you know running or... Um, most of the time we just lived in our heads. Now, the body is always in the present, but the head can't be in the present. Thinking is never in the present, ever, ever. Because, you, you know, when, you, when, thinking, when you're in the present moment, thinking becomes awareness. You're not thinking. So as soon as you're thinking, you're thinking about the past or about yourself or about someone else or about the future. And even if you think you're thinking about someone else in the present moment, those thinkings are judgment, 
our judgments of other people. So what the thinking creates in the present moment is what the judgment creates, which is anger or sadness or resentment or bitterness. So the thinking, unless, I mean, an engineer who's thinking how to build a bridge or how to build a, a better printer or how to build a, you know, is, is, is using thought in a proper way. And while they're doing that, they're not inside their emotional life, they're not inside their body. Same with a doctor, same with a lawyer, same with anyone else that uses thinking to solve certain kinds of problems. You just can't use thinking to know yourself. You have to stop thinking and listen and come into your body to know yourself. And when you do, then you know what all the great souls know because that timeless wisdom is right there. So we've had no practice living in the present moment. We've we've literally spent tens of thousands of hours believing our thoughts, believing the past stories, the future stories, believing the stories about ourselves, believing the stories about other people. And that's why it's so hard. We just haven't had any practice. Now a person who spent 10,000 hours on a surfboard is out there winning championships or placing high in, you know, in, in the world. You know, anyone that spent 10,000 hours on a surfboard is, is, is a, an expert surfer. Maybe not professional, but if they are, they're, they're in that rare handful of, of super capable surfers. And it's the same thing with a piano or a violin if you put 10,000 of hours of practice in, you become a master. And, well, you and I and everybody here that's listening to us, everybody on the planet, by the age of 10 years old, we're already a master in believing or in identifying with our thoughts and running away in, in the same way or defending ourselves in the same way from threatening feelings. So we're masters of self-protection. We're masters of self-importance. Uh, we're masters of believing every thought, you know, nobody is born a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist, that's enculturation, and then you start believing everything you were enculturated in. We're born in a particular part of the planet, so we become French or Russian or American or whatever, but that's, you know, we're all earthlings. When Neil Armstrong looked back at planet Earth from the moon in 1969, everybody then, everybody got that image sooner or later, you know. Hey, wait a minute, we're floating in space. All the boundaries are mind-made. Mind-made. And when those boundaries come down inside of us, then, then we become we become wise. We become alive in this profound way. And 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 then we know that there's there's no you know, I I've I've probably worked with at least thirty nationalities. You know? It doesn't matter your nationality. Who people really are is deeper than nationality. Who people really are is deeper than religious conditioning and religious education, deeper than your degree. You know, you know I'm I'm far more than just someone who had a medical degree. Um, you know, in, in the deepest sense, I'm just an ordinary person learning slowly but surely what it is to be conscious. Um, so you're right. It's hard to do because we don't practice it. But if the people who are listening now want to learn it, and you know, I I have one methodology. It's, it seems to work very very well for people, um, and they can they can learn it in the book or they can learn it from the website. It, and you you just read a little bit of material about my work, and then we're able to help your friend for just calling her back to the present. It, I mean, we really can learn this, and then with practice, you start to live more and more in the present. So life gets simpler and. You start to feel better. I mean, you're just not poisoning yourself with your thinking. So 
So everything well, when you changes. Talk, when you were talking yeah. about the surfer, um, uh, I thought about a lot of athletic people or ath- professional athletes. When they make a mistake, like a tennis player or a golf player, and they make a mistake, it it takes them out of the zone, and then they start thinking about the mistake rather than their next play. So that's like life. But, you know, that's exactly right. And that's what a master that makes a mistake says, okay, they forgive immediately the mistake, and they know I have to come back to this place inside of myself, which is not in thought. It's just in being. And trust the thousands of hours of practice and and they surrender back into the present moment and they play really well but but a person if they if they if they say oh god now i'm my game i'm off my game now i'm not going as soon as they have that thought they won't play well you're absolutely right absolutely right and and so what's so interesting is that, that certain athletes who are true masters but like michael jordan for example was absolutely a master on the basketball court but he had a terrible gambling problem and, and squandered millions of dollars and got himself into trouble. And Tiger Woods is a, a master at golf, and he's re, re, his game is coming back now. But for a period of time, he was certainly far from anything. In terms of relationship and intimacy and love, he was like an undeveloped teenager, and it got him in trouble. And, that, and then for a while, while he struggled with that, his golf game was completely off. And um, hopefully he's made some progress in, in the relationship, emotional side of his nature, because now his golf game is coming back. Um, I don't know. Everybody has to decide. Do I want to be great at something, or do I want to really know how to celebrate life in every moment, no matter what it brings? And I would say do both. No reason why we can't become superb golfers and conscious people, or superb actor or actress. And and, and really live deeply into conscious potential, really understand presence. So, you're, you know, that's right. If you, if you make a mistake and you blame yourself, when I find myself getting caught up in my thinking and, and it's making me unhappy, I don't blame myself. I say, I, I reward my awareness. I say, hey, thank you. I just became aware that I got lost in the future and it was making me anxious. I'm coming right back. I have one notoriously terrible place for me which is lines at the airport. And I, I I get to go, or, you know, when you're in foreign countries where nobody believes in a queue and nobody believes in standing on line and waiting their turn and people shove ahead, I used to tell myself awful stories. I'd get so angry and so self-righteous and finally I just said, well, this is how it is here and I learned to push into the queue too. You know, otherwise you never get there. Uh, it's, you know, but, you know, the thing is to reward awareness. I made a mistake. Oh, thank you for showing me I made a mistake. And what part showed me that? My my deeper awareness. Oh, thank you for showing me I'm caught in the past. I, I want to be right back here in the present. So you reward awareness. I teach people, you know, everybody gets into this problem on the spiritual path. You start to expect a lot of yourself, so you become very critical when you, when you lose your temper or you get angry or you get unhappy or you get depressed. But the point is, be aware, and then just simply say, "Oh, those, I'm in a kind of depressive state right now," and and this reward the awareness. Oh, now I'm happy, and reward the awareness, and you know because our inner state constantly changes like weather. It, it's like getting lost 
um, when you're lost, you instead of getting angry about being lost, just think of the new scenery you got to see. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. And in a funny way, I mean, if if you if you keep coming back to your body, to the present moment, to your breath, to your senses, to your perceptions, and to that deep aliveness that's there when it isn't buried under the emotions created by thoughts or the anger created by thoughts or the jealousy created by thoughts or the resentment created by thoughts, then you're never really lost. I mean, yeah, okay, I'm lost. Uh, I had this experience and I left my um, shoulder, little shoulder man bag, which had my passport and my wallet and had about $6,000 in it. It had my eyeglasses. It had my little camera. It had all of my all of my ID, and I left it on a train. And the train left. And as we were loading bags into the taxi, I went, "Oh my God, where's that bag?" And now you have to just picture this. I'm overseas. I'm in another country. I've got nothing in my pockets. I have no ID of any kind, any kind. And I've just lost a lot of money. Um, <sighs> I've lost everything. So we go to the train station person. I can't even speak the language. A friend is translating. And I just... And, the, and at first, the, the person doesn't want to help. Uh, lost and found for the train system opens tomorrow. You can call this number. I, but, you know, clearly it wasn't going to be on the train if we waited till tomorrow. And the train was, you know, on its way to another stop that was like 40 minutes away. And Well, long story short... I just sat down on the ground, watched myself feel how astonished I was at my stupidity, if that was my judgments of me, and then picturing the future with, oh my God, I'm going to have to call the embassy, I'm going to have to do this, I'm going to have to do that, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't even have any, I don't even have anything with which to, to you know, cancel my, all my credit cards, and I, I, I'm going to have to. So I was in the future with that, and then I was thinking about the money loss. That was the least, you know, least of my concerns. Most of it was just judgment of me for being. How could I be so absent-minded? And then I got quiet, and my friend, who was could speak the language and was talking to the train master, um, I said, "There's anything we can do?" And she said, "Maybe just pray." And it's, I just was quiet there, and I just said, "Okay." Did I do anything today for which I deserve to be punished? And I said, well, there are plenty of days where I have some pretty negative or aggressive thoughts, but I actually was pretty good today. And, uh, and then I thought how silly it was to think that I would be punished by God or anything else. And, but So I just simply said to life, well, all right, whatever happens, happens. And some, some, somehow the, the, the woman changed her mind, decided to be helpful, made a phone call to the next train station, and and they went to the train when it landed, arrived, went to the seat where I was sitting. There was my bag under the seat, and I got it all back. Oh, wow. And I could have, I could have made myself insane. I mean, I could have made myself insane. Um, but all these years of practice, I just said, okay, stay where you are. You know, whatever happens, happens. And I, I, and I, I mean, I'm very grateful I got it back, and I'm grateful the woman decided to be helpful. Instead of just, you know, be an administrator, be a bureaucrat, um, and I'm very grateful that the person that went on the train decided to 
turn it in and not open it up and take the money and all that was in it because anybody could have. I got everything back. And I, I started off the, the next retreat, which was with a big group of people, just so grateful. And I guess I would have had to learn to be grateful if I didn't get it back. I sure would have spent a lot of hours on the phone and had to travel to an embassy and everything. Oh, what aggravation. But, did you feel like hugging that lady that helped you? <laughs> oh, yes, I did. I did. Uh, and and um, when we went back up about 10 days later to the train, same train station, I looked for her because I wanted to thank her, but she wasn't there. Someone else was on duty. But I certainly thanked the people at the... Oh, by the way, they actually gave me a free train ticket. And, and my friend who could speak the language, we were in France, and... Um, and they gave us a free train ticket to catch up to the other train to the station where they'd found my you know they they'd found my bag and um what a gift so they not only did they get my bag back but I got to travel to the bag for free oh, wow and all that happened is instead of me arriving and having a nice dinner I arrived at, I got there at 1 in the morning instead of at 8 at night so it was but you were grateful all the all that late time <laughs> Well, you know, as I said to my girlfriend, I said, you know, all those years of practice came into play right now, my my partner. I said, I didn't punish myself. I didn't take it out on you guys. I just breathed and let go. And and the only thing I could do was not believe the stories and hope for the best to emerge from other human beings. And it did. And just one simple well, example. That was the highest form of practice. That was the highest form of practice. Uh, well, uh, I think it depends upon the stress. I don't know. I, I, I know yeah. my back is out now, and probably I'm not going to get to be able to ride my bike or do any of the kind of recreational things I love, like hiking in the mountains this summer, because it's it's out pretty badly, and I, I it's got a bulging disc, and it's going to take me you know a long time for it. It's going to take whatever number of months it takes for it to heal if I'm very careful, and um. So no more stories about, you know, no no stories about oh I can't ride my bike because that would just depress me or oh I can't hike in the mountains because it just would depress me. Um, so I mean I, this is a practice every day, all the time, yeah. to just start all over right now. There's just as much the kingdom of heaven is right here, whether you lose your wallet or whether you, your back goes out or whether you're sick or whether you're well, it's 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 right here, and sometimes it's really really hard. Grief is difficult. Loss of someone we love is difficult. Um, but what makes it so much worse is to tell ourselves a story that we should have done more, which just creates guilt. Yeah. Let me ask you, you've written seven, seven books, and, and I want you to choose one of those books in your mind and share with, with us What propelled you to write the book and the surprises uh, that took place when writing it? Yeah. Well, it's, it's an inter- I, I'm going to take your request very seriously. The first book that came into my mind was my first book. And the reason I wrote it, and it's called The Eye That Is We, and it's very hard to find now. It's not, it's not in print, though you can get it used on Amazon. And I'd rather have people look at the mandala of being an inside-out healing because I think that comes from a much more mature time in my life. But I wrote the first book 
to see if I could. I wrote the first book because I wanted to promote myself. I wrote the first book to find out if to, to find out. Well, I, as I did it, I found out what I knew and what I thought, and the difference between. So I found that the first book leveraged a profound change in my life because it it gradually went all over the world and, and it started me on my international teaching. Um, so there was there was selfish motives, and there were um, generous motives. As I think in everything I have ever done, there's always been some selfish motive and there's always been a generous motive. And I mean. The, the, the shadow side of me, and in all of us, I, I'm aware of it. It's there, and 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 it it serves me, because sometimes insecurity makes me try harder, and um, sometimes superiority gets me in trouble and leads to humility. And um, but if I were to point people toward a book that I think would be of real use to them, I, I actually couldn't do it because their own soul is vibrating now in their own journey at a particular place. And my books were written every time I got pregnant. Every four or five years, I'd write another book. Um, and, you know, those books will will be, um, you know, they'll speak to people in, in, in accordance with their own, wherever they are in themselves, wherever they, wherever they are in their own journey. So I, I don't know what I would say, but uh, I'm glad I did them. The most difficult one, I wrote the the Black Butterfly in 90 days, from from when I sat down to the day it went off to the publisher. That that was the book that flowed out of me the most. It's probably my most well-known book. It's the one that's reached more more places in the world and more people. That took 90 days to write, and the Mandala of Being took five years all of my free time during five years, and it was such a struggle. It was really me trying to synthesize and integrate everything I'd learned from working with so many people for, at that point, close to 30 years. So, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, have you ever read your books, like the one that came out in 90 days, uh, and you've read it, and it's uh, as though somebody else wrote it? Every time. You know, if I open one of my books, I go, and I start to read them, um, I, I go, God, was I that arrogant? There's one book in particular. God, was I, was I, was I so blind that, that I thought everybody was interested in transformation? Look at this tone. It's arrogant. And I haven't, I, you know, that's only in one particular book I felt that. In most of my books, I think, gee, how come, who's that guy? He seems to know a lot more. He seems to know a lot more than I do, you know. So I'm really impressed that you know the focus that comes in writing a book can can open us up to such a uh, a deeper part of ourselves. And my books are not channeled. I know they're <laughs> they're hard work, but nevertheless, the more I see it as music, you know. And 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 some composers continue to change their music. Like, Mozart wrote his music and he was done. Beethoven changed it over and over and over and over again. And I'm one of these people when I write that I change it over and over and over again. But it is like music. I want the first sentence to and the whole paragraph to be kind of a certain sound and each chapter to, to be like a movement in a symphony or 
and a concerto and that there's a kind of a rhythm that carries the consciousness that carries the energy um and my newest books are the ones that are the clearest and where where the the, the skill at writing the, the art of writing is grown but i don't like writing it's ugh, it's hard work <laughs> well, i'm thinking of your last book i mean you know inside out healing i mean that alone and being that you're you know you're a doctor and have that background and being able to transform your your life through the power of 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 really of being in the present moment being able to feel the energies in your body i think that's really prolific i mean it it, it is it's it's it, that's fine tuning your instruments you know uh, it is it's really awesome um to even think you know, of it that way yeah medicine i would be dead now if it weren't for medicine at least once at least once um an infectious disease and my kidneys were shutting down and my fever was over 105 and antibiotics saved my life so that aspect of science and medicine i am very grateful for but the journey the journey to to make peace with yourself to 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 decide yeah. what you you know what what is your spiritual gps set for, you know what 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 is it navigating by um I think for most people, let's be grateful that science can help us, and then let's do the work that allows us to become really profoundly alive, capable of deep intimacy, capable of profound love, um, and and you know set our GPS for something that really matters to us. For me, it's you know to know the greatest depth of intimacy with each moment of life. And also very specifically with one person. Because it's with one person that all the deep psychological issues always come up. The fears of abandonment, the, the neediness, the you know all the psychology psychological stuff from early, early childhood, maybe even from previous lifetimes, maybe even from the womb, they come up when we try to love one person. So that that's kind of the the place where you you get to really practice deeply, and um, that's, the why, that's the reason why we're in relationships. Yeah, exactly. Now uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I just wanted to touch a tiny bit on dream work because um, you mentioned that you do that in your retreats. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have do you have people journal their dreams? Uh, I. I um I write to people before a retreat and I say just be aware that now that you've decided to come to a retreat your 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 psyche your deeper consciousness is probably going to offer you a dream and uh, try to remember it you know keep a dream journal if you can and um during the retreats right usually near the beginning I find out I try to hear a few of the dreams people had before they came um and then during the retreat we work on dreams some of the mornings, not every morning. I've heard thousands and thousands of dreams. And the interesting thing is, if you hear dreams in the context of a retreat, um, you have a sense of the 
outer environment or the circumstances in which the person is having the dream, as well as so the dream speaks to their way of looking at or interpreting the experiences they're living. Um, so I do have people keep a dream journal. I teach people how to work with dreams. I teach therapists how to work with dreams. I have done trainings in dream work um, six or seven different countries. Um, and for psychotherapists and the, the the one question I would I usually start with is the question if you hadn't had this dream what would you not be conscious of and then I consider consciousness to be everything feelings sensations conceptions thoughts you know so if you hadn't had this dream what would you not think about what would you not associate to what you would you not be feeling what would you not be wondering about what would you not be remembering and so forth and with that starting point a person can start to explore a dream, then I don't think there's a right interpretation of a dream. I think a lot of people don't try because they they don't try to work with their dreams because they think, oh, I don't know anything about dreams. Well, actually, in a certain sense, nobody knows anything about dreams. Even Freud and Jung and all those people, what they know is what they created in relationship to the dreams they had or the dreams they heard. So, so that's what matters. It's what you create by engaging the dream, not whether you're getting it completely right or anything else. There's a little bit of science about dreams. We have a sense of what part of the brain activates when we dream, the relationship between dreaming and the waking state, which is actually very similar, but we're organizing information in a very different way in dreams. Um, and if you've heard enough dreams, then you know that some dreams are coming from dimensions of of intelligence or wisdom that are so enormous and some dreams are coming from the fact that you you hiked all day and you're sleeping on a thin pad in the mountains and your whole body feels achy and the dream is full of like a cacophony of images and it doesn't make any sense at all and you'll never understand it and it's just sort of the body talking through dreams after a, a, a rough day but some dreams are profound. You know, some dreams are visionary. Some dreams are prophetic. Some dreams, um, they, they're, you know, I the major decision points in my life have come or been guided by dreams. I left medicine because of a dream. I, I healed myself from a serious illness because of a dream. Um, and so well, I hate to say this. I hate to give, say this, but we're out of time. Uh, the hour went by so quickly. Um, and we just want everybody to know that uh, they can uh, hop on your website because there's so much there. And um, Facebook. And Facebook. And, okay. Yes, and I, and I have a YouTube channel, and that's really cool because there's lots of short inspirational videos uh, on the YouTube channel and a cu- couple of instructional videos, and it's all free. And there's the free e-course on the website, richardmoss.com, and my page, Richard Moss, on Facebook. Richardmoss.com. And so everybody, uh, I've listened to a couple of videos that YouTubes are wonderful. Mm. So thank you, thank you for being with us. We loved every moment. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, Taz. Time with you. (laughs) Do your work, too. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I'm sorry I didn't get on early enough to be able to listen a little, learn a little more about your journeys. Well, we'll have you back again so you can. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay.
Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.